Welcome to Irish Passport. Uh, let's do it. Welcome to the Irish Passport. I'm Tim McInerney. I'm Naomi O'Leary. We're friends. Okay, well to Naomi. Anwar Fad Tim. This is your passport to Irish culture, history and politics. Uh-huh. I'm recording. One, One two, two, three. three. Okay. Hi everyone and welcome back to a brand new season 5 of the Irish Passport podcast. So today, to kick off the season, we are going to discuss one of the most momentous and violent industrial disputes in the history of Ireland and how its legacy still lives on today. Uh, just over 100 years ago, the city of Dublin was thrown into chaos for about 5 months as some 20,000 workers rose up against about 300 of the city's main employers. Now, that event mirrored similar industrial disputes that were, of course, taking off all over Europe at around the same time. But in Ireland, this workers' uprising quickly became entangled in the rising tide of nationalist politics and the general climate of insurrection that would, of course, explode three years later on into the Easter Rising of 1916. We are, of course, talking about the infamous Dublin lockout an event that has long been a touchstone point of reference for left-wing politics in Ireland and that's left a long and sometimes painful legacy in the city of Dublin. It's something as well, Tim, that reminds us just how fundamental radical socialist politics were to the independence movement at the beginning of the 20th century. Right, yeah, and that's something, like we've said before in the podcast, that's easy to forget these days because the post-independence period was really, really marked by conservative and often, like, hyper-reactionary politics uh, to the dismay, of course, uh, of many of those original rebels from 1916. Right, and Irish politics, of course, doesn't fit into the typical European left-right spectrum. For decades, the big tent catch-all Fianna Fáil party absorbed much of the electorate that in other countries would have made up the support of those big left or centre-left blocs in Parliament. Right now, however, we're living in a moment of profound change and political dynamism. The aftermath of the global financial crisis profoundly shook up traditional voting patterns in Ireland. That meant that the old behemoth of Fianna Fáil became a shadow of what it once was, and left-wing politics are decidedly on the rise again. In 2013, the city of Dublin celebrated the centenary of the lockout with huge fanfare, and that arguably inspired many people to take another look afresh at the history of Irish socialism and its roots in the foundation of the state. In this episode, we'll explore what exactly inspired the working people of Dublin to rise up against the city's business tycoons, and how it affected the way people saw the future of an independent Ireland around that time. And we'll hear from a man who carried on the oral history of that era, the actor, artist and political activist Ger O'Leary, who was famous for portraying union leader Jim Larkin throughout his life on stage and in political rallies, the theatre of the streets. Before he died, Ger spoke to us about Jim Larkin and the Dublin lockout. There's never been anything before in Irish politics or since who swept up uh, the lowest of the low, the poorest of the poor, and amalgamated them all together into one cast red iron fist. We'll also hear from historian Dr. Neve Perchale, who penned the authoritative work The Irish Labour Party, 1922-1973. to Neve tells us how the labour movement became marginalised in the years after independence, and that was something that was to have deep implications for the politics of the new state that remain really important even today. 
the Catholic Church was strongly against the state having control over anything, which made supporting even mild socialism very difficult. Okay, Tim, so how did this all begin back in 1913? Okay, right. So I'm, I'm going to bring you, Naomi, and our listeners back to Dublin. And I'm going to bring you in particular to O'Connell Street, which is, of course, the main thoroughfare of the city. And if you've ever walked up O'Connell Street, you have almost definitely noticed this really, really striking statue. Uh, it's a life-sized representation of a man with his hands thrown high up into the air. And he's captured in the middle of what seems to be a rapturous speech uh, to the people around him. Of course, you're talking about the representation of one of Ireland's most famous trade unionists and political agitators, James Larkin, also fondly known as Big Jim Larkin. And the statue really stands out because mostly statues around Dublin depict elite establishment figures. And even Daniel O'Connell, the Irish nationalist politician whose statue dominates the entrance to O'Connell Street, was born in a big house to a wealthy and connected family. But Larkin, as we'll see, grew up in immigrant slums and throughout his life, he was about as anti-establishment as they come. Yeah, absolutely. I, like there are loads and loads of statues in Dublin. It's actually quite, quite something. And this one uh, is unlike all the others. Uh, on the plinth of that statue uh, is a line from one of Larkin's most famous speeches, uh, which is actually a reference to a slogan once used by French revolutionaries. Uh, it's inscribed first in French, then in Irish, and only then in English translation. And it reads, The great appear great because we are on our knees. Let us rise. So something particularly dramatic was going on at this time, at the time that this man gave speeches to the people of Dublin. So, Tim, to begin with, it's probably worthwhile to set out a bit of the context for what was the situation for working class citizens of Dublin back in 1913. Right, sure. Well, first of all, I think we need to remember that the United Kingdom, uh, of which Ireland was a part back then, uh, was still kind of reeling from the like really incredible advances of the Industrial Revolution. Um, over the previous hundred years, the UK's economy had just totally transformed. And in many ways, society was still trying to catch up with the realities of this new kind of industrial reality. Um, in particular, since the very beginning of the Industrial Revolution, uh, economic expansion had been absolutely reliant on worker exploitation. Uh, basically, the idea of a big hyperproductive, hyper-efficient factory, uh, you know, was, was still relatively new at this point. You know, these, mm. these mega factories had not existed really before. And there were very few, if any, like real safeguards to prevent abuse and exploitation within uh, those factories and the system um, of labour in general. So, like, of course, when you strip back all of the labour laws that we have today, you can see that the whole original idea of a factory uh, is essentially to pay as few people as possible the least amount of money as possible in order to produce as much as you possibly can uh, in order to enrich you and not your workers. And that yeah. whole dynamic, you know, that was ultimately reliant on a constant supply of cheap labour. You know, nothing works unless you have this supply of cheap labour and the cheaper the better. So we often think about the Industrial Revolution in terms of like, I don't know, like inventions, like the steam engine or the steamboat or like the cotton gin or like, you know. The spinning uh, like, jenny. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, you know, big successful uh, engineers and the like. But at the end of the day, like the real engine of the Industrial Revolution in the United Kingdom was this labor source. And it wasn't just any labor source. This was a new kind of labor source. It was cheap and it was in competition with itself all the time. 
Right. And it's to do with these shifting patterns with agriculture and the land and so on. And these Mm. workers were basically doing all the work that was making the United Kingdom one of the richest places on the planet. But they themselves weren't actually seeing very much of the riches. They were the ones that were unloading the luxury silks and the spices from the ships that were arriving into the ports. But they would never have enough money to afford anything like that themselves. And in fact, the whole economic model relied on them only really earning enough to survive and no more no less. So I'm guessing the situation in Ireland at the beginning of the 20th century would have been more or less similar or analogous. Yeah, definitely similar and analogous, but surprise, surprise, worse. Um, (laughs) (laughs) You know, um, so Ireland was, of course, uh, while it was within the UK and very much part of this industrialising system, it was an outlier in many ways. As we've seen, Ireland had never really been industrialised, with the notable exception of Belfast and the North East. Traditionally, the main economic role of most of the country had been agricultural, and that was to provide food mainly for industrial Britain. But of course, that had all gone disastrously wrong through through the devastating famine, which had emptied out the country and tore apart its social and economic fabric. So the population had been really devastated and people were living in really, really awful conditions. Just like in Britain then, people in Ireland were just piling into the cities looking for work. But with the limited industry that there was in Ireland, there were just not enough jobs to go around, especially in the South. So by 1913, it's estimated that a full fifth of Dublin's entire population were unemployed. And an estimated one third of all the inhabitants in the city were living in tenements or slums. Dublin was famous, actually, for having some of the worst slums in Europe at this stage, which isn't that surprising when you think about this as a kind of post-famine period. People were very often living in and around the rubble of buildings that were just collapsing around them, like it was really, really bad, even even in the context of, of slums at the time. So just to give you a visual here, the tenements themselves were often very different from what you might have found in, say, Glasgow or London. A lot of them were actually former mansions of the old colonial elite who had abandoned Dublin for London after the Act of Union with Britain in 1801. These mansions had mostly been built back in the 18th century as urban residencies for the country's wealthy landowners. But once they'd been sold off, they were subdivided into tiny little rooms for the poorest people in the city. And you can still see some of them today, such as in the Dublin Tenement Museum in Henrietta Street. And there you can actually see the different paint on the walls where families erected makeshift walls and ceilings inside big ballrooms or dining rooms. And even the the old staircases were sometimes divided into tenement apartments. Yeah, absolutely. And something you'll notice on those old uh, tenement buildings as well is this metallic blue paint, which was actually anti-tuberculosis paint. People believed it was uh, antiseptic. Uh, So that shows you as well that, you know, disease was rife uh, in these places. There was, of course, no proper sanitation. And you you would have these outbreaks of pneumonia and TB, which can spread really quickly in slum environments. So what about the rest of the city then? Well, right. uh, This is where things get really interesting uh, in this story, because, of course, there were there were other, you know, there were other economic categories in Ireland at the same time. The Industrial Revolution famously also introduced this whole new class dynamic in the form of the rising uh, middle class. So straight away, it's probably it's probably worth clarifying, especially for our American listeners, because I know the word middle class is used differently there, that when we talk about middle class in this context, it might not exactly mean what you expect it to. 
So the middle classes in 19th century Ireland or the UK encompassed a huge range of people and incomes, uh, some some of whom were like really on the edge financially, like risking falling into poverty all the time. And there were some others who were even more wealthy, like spectacularly more wealthy than even the old landed elite. Okay, so to make sense of this, what distinguished the middle categories from the other economic categories wasn't necessarily how much money they had, but it was how they made their money. Yeah, exactly. So these were the people who had essentially profited from the new forms of production in the industrial age. Uh, Some of them were factory owners or merchants or, you know, they were just raking in cash from all the cheap produce that was like suddenly available. And others just might have been large farmers who were benefiting from this more industrialized agricultural method. Or you might have just belonged to like the new apparatus of the industrial world. You might have belonged Mm. to the civil service or you might have been a professional like a doctor or an inventor or or an engineer or whatever. Like, all of this was booming, basically, on the back of the Industrial Revolution. Like, whatever the case, though, there was a real, like, social anxiety all across Europe about how much power now lay within the grasp of these people, these middle classes. The old pre-industrial system was mainly based on a very small hereditary elite of big landowners, and Mm -hmm. then this huge commonality of, like, tenant farmers. And underlying the relationship between, like, elite landowners and farmers was this kind of implicit social contract, right? So, like, theoretically, if not always in reality, um, the landed elite were supposed to look after these people. They were supposed to look after society. You know, they were running the government and they were supposed to be looking after the normal people. Like, they were expected to listen to their tenants, like, to to lower the rent when there was a bad harvest or to, like, mm. sort out legal, legal disputes in the local village, that kind of thing. And they were the ones with the education and the privilege, you know, so like, you know, with with their great power, Naomi came great responsibility. Like that was the idea. Um, So like, obviously, the reality of landlordism was often very, very different from that. But that was the expectation of how it was supposed to be. Okay, so then the middle classes, so they don't fit really into that conception Mm -hmm. of the world or those categories. They're kind of, you know, they're in it for the money, which upended this social ideal. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they they couldn't care less about like society, quote unquote. Uh, and they were unapologetic about that. You know, they had made their money through innovation and like self-advancement uh, and aspiration. And they were understandably proud of what they had achieved. You know, a lot of these middle classes had come from nothing. But what we see is this huge animosity towards the middle classes, not just from the lower classes who were kind of jealous of them uh, and who bore the brunt of like industrial exploitation, but also from the old landed elite who had been like toppled from their, you know, from their pinnacle of society position. So there was this sense of like disgust towards the middle classes as only being interested in money and basically representing the downfall of like what was supposed to be proper social order. And if you think about it, that animosity absolutely lingers on today. You know, when you hear the words middle class or bourgeois uh, today, like they often have these really negative connotations and we don't even really think about why. Like there's still this kind of ingrained kind of derision in society today towards anyone that might be thought of as like nouveau riche. It's like they they just shouldn't Mm. be there somehow. It's really interesting. And of course, the dynamic becomes all the more fascinating when we think about the context of colonial Ireland. So at that point, the old Protestant elite were still very much in place. But like the big landlords in Britain, they had been losing their grip over the country since the Industrial Revolution. And in addition to this pre-existing sense of hostility towards the middle classes, we should also add in the fact that in Ireland, these rising middle classes were largely Catholic. 
Right, exactly. Yeah. So there's this whole extra dynamic of this in Ireland. Like there were loads of middle class Protestants too, of course. But since Catholic emancipation back in 1829, which had finally allowed Catholics to do middle class things like enter government or like get a full mm. education, things like that. The Catholic middle class had been kind of leeching economic clout and social influence from the old landed elite who were mostly Protestant. And by the early 20th century, a whole like host of Catholic private schools had sprung up, especially around Dublin, to cater for these aspiring middle classes. There was even a Catholic university now that would go on to become UCD, of course, University College Dublin. This is all so interesting. And as we'll see in a minute, it was also a very important factor in the Dublin lockout. A lot of those Catholic middle classes were deeply involved with the independence movement, but they tended towards a more moderate position. So a lot of them, for example, were very invested in the idea of home rule. Right. So home rule, as a reminder, in other words, um, a kind of autonomous government within the United Kingdom, which would have been a lot less uh, radical than um, some of the other nationalists who wanted an independent republic. And you can see why these Catholic middle classes, even though they were nationalists, would want this kind of thing. Like, these guys were doing well for themselves under the current system. Like, they they could do better, they thought, you know, um, with, with more control over the government, but they didn't have much reason to rock the boat, you know? Or not profoundly, not like, you know, tear down the system in its entirety. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think one of the driving forces in the Irish Revolution was that so many people had very little to lose, <laughs> you know, and so that they could go to this radical position and not really worry. But the middle classes did have something to lose. And the independent Ireland that they wanted was one that would continue favouring them in the same way. Like, mm -hmm. so in other words, something that was structurally capitalist, like quintessentially inegalitarian, just minus interference or mismanagement from Britain. I see. Um, and of course, these Catholic middle classes were on the receiving end from quite a lot of ire from the more idealistic nationalists at around this same time. And especially those who hailed actually from the old landed elite. We mentioned in one of our half pints that W.B. Yeats, the poet, famously derided uh, these these uh, middle classes in his poem, September 1913. And this is what he wrote. What need you being come to sense but fumble in a greasy till and add the halfpence to the pence and prayer to shivering prayer until you have dried the marrow from the bone. For men were born to pray and save. Romantic Ireland's dead and gone, it's with O'Leary in the grave. So that is Yeats dissing Dublin's Catholic <laughs> middle class as um, money-grubbing and lacking in passion or idealism. And of course, the prominence of the year 1913, the title of the poem, is not coincidental. Not at all. So yeah, remember that quotes from Yeats as we go along. Now, right. So like, let's bring this together. A, a lot of these Catholic middle classes were the ones who ran the businesses, the main businesses in Dublin City. And they were doing that alongside, you know, a big population of bourgeois and elite Protestants. And at this time, just like lots of the middle classes in Britain as well, they had huge power over their employees. And at this point in Dublin, unskilled workers, so people who, you know, didn't have a skill like carpentry or cobbling or whatever, um, these unskilled workers essentially had to compete with each other on a daily basis just to get a bit of work and to try and get a bit of money to, to last to the end of the month. And the best way to do this was to to offer their their services for lower wages. So workers were constantly vying to work for less and less pay than other workers just so that they would earn something, you know. And this this like obviously suited the employers very nicely indeed. 
And in addition, unskilled workers in Dublin had practically no union representation. And if they tried to form a union, they would be often fired or blacklisted. So that essentially meant they couldn't ever be employed again. So it just wasn't worth it. Right. So a very, very serious and bad situation. We have a country that's reeling from the economic devastation of the Great Hunger. Its cities are teeming with slums and people desperate for work. And we have this rather unscrupulous and exploitative class of self-interested business owners and industrialists. And the whole situation is permeated with rising anti-imperial politics and nationalist movements, which had support from basically all levels of society in one way or another. And this was the Ireland into which Big Jim Larkin arrived in 1907. James Larkin was born to Irish parents who'd left County Armagh in the decades after the famine and ended up living in one of the Irish slums in Liverpool. Yeah, and from the get-go, Larkin seems to have possessed a certain charisma and a kind of a knack for leadership and organisation. He had been organising workers uh, over in Britain before he moved to Ireland. And then he moved to Belfast, where he organised both Protestant and Catholic workers into unions together, which was no easy feat, considering that uh, the industrial sector in Belfast was largely sectarianised a lot of the time. And then he basically just started making his way around the island of Ireland, like organising successful worker strikes wherever he went. Like he organised strikes in Dublin and Cork and Waterford, all over the place. And soon he had formed his own workers' union. This was called the Irish Transport and General Workers' Union, which is often uh, known as the ITGWU, uh, which is a terrible acronym, Jim, so... (laughs) We're not going to refer to it as that on the podcast. Um, But the aim of that union was to represent unskilled workers. Okay, so Larkin was basically spotting a bit of a gap in the market, to use a capitalist term. Like we mentioned, Mm. unskilled workers had little um, to no union representation. But their sheer numbers and the fact that these huge businesses fundamentally depended on them made them into a formidable force or potential force. Once Larkin made them realise their own power, working people across Ireland started joining up to his union in huge numbers. Yeah, right. In fact, uh, Larkin was soon drawing crowds of thousands, thousands and thousands of people uh, into the streets to hear him speak. And by 1913, his union had become Ireland's biggest and most powerful workers' organisation. I mean, that happened basically to the horror of every big business owner in Ireland. Like, Larkin was essentially becoming like a hero now, uh, and very, very quickly to the working people of Ireland. And it's important to appreciate that Larkin's workers' movement formed part of a much greater, like, matrix of radical and subversive political agitation that had been growing in Ireland since the beginning of the 20th century. As you'll know if you listen to our episode on the 1916 Rising, there'd been an explosion of public support for Irish nationalism around this time, in politics, in the arts, and in society as a whole. And what's more, by 1913, the whole scene had actually become quite militarised. So there were pro- and anti-nationalist militias, like the Ulster Volunteers and the Irish Volunteers. They'd already been formed across the country with hundreds of thousands of members, and not to mention the resurgence of secret paramilitary organisations like the Irish Republican Brotherhood. And since a lot of the discourse around this nationalist movement was centred on radical change, it was actually quite natural for it to overlap with something like Larkin's workers' movement. Major nationalist figures like W.B. Yeats, Countess Markovich and Porrick Pierce, they soon came out to support what would come to be known as the Larkinite cause. Most particularly, Larkin was a close friend of James Connolly, who would go on to become the leader of the rebellion against British rule three years later in 1916. 
In fact, back in 1912, Larkin and Connolly had co-founded the Irish Labour Party. So all of this added to a mounting powder keg of political agitation. A lot of it centred on the city of Dublin. Right. So while this agitation is brewing away, it catches the attention of another formidable figure in the city of Dublin. This is a man called William Martin Murphy. Now, you probably couldn't have gotten any more diametrically opposed uh, to Jim Larkin uh, in William Martin Murphy. Larkin was born in in a slum, like we said, to a family of famine refugees. Murphy was born into a well-to-do business family in County Cork, which had made a shed load of money from expanding their businesses uh, to the colonial outposts of the British Empire. He lived in a lovely big house down in Dartry in, in South Dublin, and he was a confirmed member of those conservative, moderately nationalist and firmly capitalist Catholic middle classes that we mentioned. So he'd been educated at Belvedere, that's a famously elite private school for Catholics. He'd served in Westminster as an MP with the Irish Parliamentary Party, and that was a popular moderate nationalist party at the time. And he had, he, you know, he had this shock of white hair and a bushy white beard. He was very well known around the city. You know, he was this epitome of like the Edwardian middle class Catholic Irishman, you know, someone who had learned to profit from the status quo and had become fabulously wealthy on the back of it. Murphy was also one of Dublin's foremost businessmen. So he owned a series of newspapers, including the Irish Independent and Sunday Independent newspapers, still two of the country's major newspapers today, as well as owning major city hotels and being chairman of the Dublin United Tram Company. And this last position was a particularly powerful one because trams were the main source of public transport in the city at a time before private cars were a thing. And that meant... It was one of the only real means of transport for a huge bulk of Dubliners. However, something was going on that made him very, very wary of this Larkinite movement. William Martin Murphy had been having serious problems with his tram company. Uh, There was all this discontent mounting over the low pay and long work hours that the tram drivers were subjected to. And there was a fear of strike action among the tram workers that was already significant enough that Murphy had infiltrated his tram lines with spies uh, to keep an eye on his employees and make sure they weren't up to any agitation. So, yeah, like, I mean, it just kind of gives you a, that that fact on its own gives you a glimpse into how kind of deep the exploitative uh, tendencies were in these companies. So when Murphy caught wind of Larkin's trade union, he completely flipped. He gathered together 300 employees from all over the city to essentially like nip this in the bud. He, he wanted to coordinate a collective response to the formation of trade unions among the workers and just stop it straight away. Uh, mm. So in August 1913, he he went on and he forced each and every one of his workers to publicly denounce Larkin's union or face immediate dismissal. And a lot of people like refused to denounce Larkin. So he ended up firing hundreds of workers on the spot that day. Brutal. Mm. Um, So remember, if you were put out of work um, at this time in Dublin, there might be no coming back from that. You know, Um, there weren't not the protections that there exist now. One fifth of the city was unemployed. If you were fired or blacklisted, you could lose everything in a split second and you could have very little chance of finding a new source of income. So workers who didn't sign this pledge were basically facing the prospect of them and their families going hungry, being thrown out on the street. So Murphy was probably pretty confident that his threat of dismissal was enough to protect his business from socialism. But it appears 
that he underestimated Larkin's sheer power of persuasion. Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. I mean, the very fact that hundreds of workers went ahead and like just got fired says something in itself. Yeah. Uh, but this was just like the beginning. Um, on hearing of what Murphy had done, Larkin secretly organised a mass strike of tram workers across the whole city. Uh, in solidarity with their colleagues who had lost their jobs, the tram workers heeded Larkin's call in huge numbers. And on the 26th of August, 1913, um, Dublin's tram workers, all at once, they abandoned their vehicles and they left passengers stranded all across the city to make their own way oh home. And instead, they just walked out of the trams and they pinned union badges on their lapels. And reportedly, the people of Dublin loved this. They cheered them <laughs> on. You know, they were surrounded by cheering crowds. And, you know, in this atmosphere of like triumph, they marched to Liberty Hall. Uh, Liberty Hall is an infamous trade union centre in the in the very centre of Dublin City. Amazing. So Martin Murphy was, to say the least, I can imagine, absolutely furious. <laughs> um, he barred every worker that was involved with the strike from returning to work and, quote unquote, locked them out of their place of work. Um, but this only made Larkin more determined. So in response, Larkin started targeting Murphy's other businesses, as well as any businesses connected to him. He called workers across the city to strike in solidarity with the tram workers of Dublin. Sure, right. And, and you can really see how this like clash of the titans must have really captured you know, the political climate of the time. Like these two huge figures that everyone knew, but that they were so, so different from one another. Um, you know, that must have really like excited people's imaginations. And in no time at all, lockouts were springing up everywhere. And this was a tense political atmosphere, remember. And very quickly, this like uh, rose up into a, an extremely dangerous situation. Uh, police battalions were sent in to clear the protesting crowds and that led to escalating riots and a ban on union assemblies. Just to keep in mind, the police forces at this time was not exactly a neutral police force. The Dublin Metropolitan Metropolitan Police, or DMB, they were answerable to Dublin Castle, the hub of British administration in Ireland. And like the Royal Irish Constabulary, which policed the rest of the country, this force was essentially an instrument of empire. And in this case, they were a above all, out to protect the interests of industrialists against these striking workers. The general feeling among employers at this time was that strikes like this had to be put down brutally and quickly before they began to gain momentum. And that meant that the forces of order pretty much had free licence to violently suppress the union rallies. Right, yeah. So so pretty uh, dramatic circumstances. Um, on the 31st of August 1913, uh, Larkin had planned to hold another major public meeting, uh, but it was cancelled due, of course, to the ban on his assemblies. However, like we mentioned earlier, Larkin had managed to garner the support of a major figure in Irish nationalism, none other than our old friend Countess Markovich, who would later become one of the principal actors in the 1916 Rising. Uh, together, Larkin and Markovich hatched a plan. Uh, she, this is crazy, but like, she, she organized a disguise for him. Remember, everyone knows his face. You know, he's been out, like, making speeches to thousands of people every day. Um, so she had to disguise him. And she managed to get him smuggled into the Imperial Hotel on O'Connell Street on the day that his meeting was supposed to be held. Now, this was a big, luxurious, high-class hotel right in the middle of O'Connell Street, actually right opposite the statue of Jim Larkin. And this hotel was really significant. Not only was, you know, this right smack bang in the centre of Dublin with a huge um, a street full of people outside, 
But it was owned. The hotel was owned by William Martin Murphy himself. So Larkin gets inside the hotel. They, I, I think they must have booked a hotel room, but he manages to get onto the main balcony. And once he's on the balcony, he rips off his disguise and he begins to address the crowds in O'Connell Street outside from William Martin Murphy's own balcony. Incredible. So let's hear Larkin's famous words from none other than Ger O'Leary who we'll hear more from later in the episode. The mission that I have come to preach is the divine mission of discontent. Friends, comrades, citizens. Aishtigi, I have come to bury William Martin Murphy, not to praise him. Look at our bosses, look at them. Well dressed and well fed, safely ensconced in the upper echelons of the Imperial Hotel over there. Yes, well dressed and well fed. And who feeds them? You do. Who clothes them? You do. And the DMP, the lackeys, the DMP and the RIC. And they button you for it. And for why? Because they are organized and disciplined. And you are not organized now. And stand together, brother with brother, sister with sister, sisters and brothers together forever. Our unity is our strength. William Martin Murphy and his ilk actually believed, so they said, that Christ died for the poor, that we may be content in our poverty, and for the rich, that they may be sustained without threat to their possessions. God, said William Martin Murphy, is a good investment. Hunger, said William Martin Murphy, is a good source. But our God is the God of deliverance. And the hunger that we have awakened shall not be satisfied by bread alone. The masters of capital, so-called. The heads of industry, so-called. The merchant princes, so-called, self-named and self-praising, the merchant princes, no less, they said they would isolate Dublin. They said they would break the spirit of the people of Dublin. They said they would wait and watch us starve. But Dublin stood. And Dublin persevered, and Dublin survived, and Dublin, as with Camille de Boulogne, at the gate of the Bastille, on the evening the peoples of the earth entered through it unto history, Dublin also said, the great are not great. The great only appear great, because we are on our knees. Let us arise! And so I say unto ye, that the workers of Dublin 
have sent me to say that they, the masters of Dublin, so-called, shall crucify Christ, Namor, in Dublin town. At this point, total pandemonium broke out on the streets of Dublin. The Dublin Metropolitan Police led hundreds of officers in a baton charge into the crowds of civilians. And within a few hours, this led on to full-on attacks on tenement buildings in the city. Within days, everyday life in the city had ground to a halt. The strikes disrupted industry, transport and the delivery of food. Violence broke out on a daily basis between strikers and police, but also between protesters and desperate workers who wanted to return to their jobs. To try and break the strike, a Dublin businessman imported replacement workers uh, from Britain, which was not an unusual thing to do in this kind of situation. Um, and there were so many of these imported workers, and the city was so dangerous for them, it was so hostile to them, that they had to sleep on special ships that were docked on the River Liffey uh, near the factories where they could be oh protected. God. Yeah. Um, there were some, there's some really stunning photographs, uh, dating from these years that really capture the chaos and the passion, you know, that was sweeping the city. Uh, perhaps the most famous is the photograph that inspired Larkin's statue on O'Connell Street. This is a photograph that captures him in the middle of an enraptured speech, and he has his arms just flung up high, and his coattails are blowing in the wind, and there's just crowds of people piling below him, and he has his mouth wide open, you know, it is such, such an iconic picture. You can almost feel the electricity of the crowd and that moment in the picture. We'll post a link to it in the show notes. And you can only imagine the exhilaration that people must have felt having been so ground down, you know, over their lives. And then seeing this mass, you know, mobilization, this mass solidarity just taking off before their eyes to demand a fair quality of life. Yeah, right. And when you think about the passion that we have, you know, in big protests today, like this was at a time when like workers had no rights, you know, so this must have meant absolutely everything to them. Another really striking photograph shows just hundreds and hundreds of uh, mostly men and boys posing for the camera with three big posters that read Murphy must go. And you can only imagine, you know, what was going through William Martin Murphy's mind seeing pictures like this, like, this guy had such unquestioned power, you know, uh, before this. And here are his own employees, like, parading through the streets demanding his resignation. Like, must have been just incredibly humiliating for a man like him. Mm -hmm. Some of the most chilling photographs capture the police baton charges that just charged into the protesting crowds. With deadly results as well. Mm. And for months, chaos reigned on the streets of Dublin. Christmas came and went, but the workers still held out. But they had dwindling food supplies and security. And mortality actually soared among the poor of Dublin at this point, particularly among children. By January, destitution had grown unbearable. So unbearable that the strike finally started to dwindle. And workers returned one by one to the factories. But after five months of lockout, the face of Dublin had completely changed. Even though the lockout had been successful, it cast this very long shadow. The profound discontent in the city was now palpable, and the working people of the city had realised their own capacity for change, that they could take the reins of power. One of the most consequential legacies of the Dublin lockout was the establishment of the Irish Citizen Army. Uh, this was a workers' militia group formed by Larkin and James Connolly during the lockout itself. But unlike the strike, this organisation did not disappear. 
During the 1916 Rising, Liberty Hall, which had, of course, been the focal point for the Dublin lockout, became a munitions factory for the Irish Citizen Army rebels. Right, and famously, after the outbreak of World War I, Liberty Hall hung out a banner that read, We serve neither King nor Kaiser, but Ireland. And it was also there that the leaders of the 1916 Rising assembled before marching on the General Post Office. Right, so like Liberty Hall is this kind of like sister monument, I suppose, in Dublin to the GPO. Like it's it's the it's a represents this whole other side of the 1916 Rising, and this really important side that's often kind of drowned out in histories. It's still a hub for trade unions in Ireland today. The original building is gone, and in its place stands a very distinctive 16-story building that was erected in the 1960s. You definitely can't really miss it if you're ever in Dublin, because there's so few other tall buildings around it. That building was severely damaged when it was bombed by loyalist paramilitaries, the Ulster Volunteer Force, in 1972. But it, it survived, and it continues to symbolise the historical intersections between socialism and the Irish Republic. In the long term, the socialist politics of the Dublin lockout ended up becoming instrumental in the foundation of the modern Irish state. But that strand of radical socialism was quickly overtaken and overshadowed by the small c conservative policies of the free state. But the the spirit of the Dublin lockout never died. It remains today an important cultural touchstone, particularly for Dublin's working class. And there's one man in particular who carried on an oral history of that particular moment of working class unity. One of Dublin's most famous characters, Jur O'Leary. Jur was an artist and an actor. He first acted in the role of Jim Larkin in The Non-Stop Connolly Show in 1975, which was a piece of radical literature. He was also a trade unionist and an activist, and he went on to reprise that role of playing Jim Larkin throughout his life. So he appeared as Larkin in innumerable demonstrations and protests and historical commemorations, as well as on the stage, when he would deliver Larkin's famous speech. I was lucky to interview Jur about his life and work before he died in 2018. For, for those who don't know who Jim Larkin is, how would you explain just... Well, it's hard. It was, such a, it was um, a tornado in human form, practically. Uh, when he arrived in Dublin after coming out of Belfast, over from Liverpool in 19, uh, 1908, early 1909 or so, and he was already had a, had a huge strike behind him in Belfast, where not only for the first time ever and since. Uh, he actually had practically all the Catholic workers and all the Protestant workers out at the one time. And within a few weeks before the strike was over and settled, he actually had the police out, a major part of the police, as he called uh, The RUC, the Royal Ulster Constabulary Without Strike. So this guy was like, he hits here. The, the, the establishment of trade and their lives, and I don't know what to make, there's no other union leader up to that stage. Uh, as was the explosive force that he was. Uh, most of the unions up to the prior to that were, um, what would you say, uh, there were guilds. They were like, almost like religious guilds. You had, uh, and there were mainly professional crafts. There were craftsmen like uh, printers or weavers or 
even cold ones had had their own uh, guilds and the uh, uh, butchers and bakers and candlestick makers and all that. But Lang was the first one to try and organise a general union for the ordinary everyday worker. And uh, not only everyday, but the old day workers got a huge amount of casualisation work on the docks. Just like you see, uh, and the readout in the morning, you might be picking, you might, just like you see it on the waterfront, the read on the docks with Brando, as we were talking about earlier. And uh, the buses were able, that a huge, um, they were able to put a huge amount of pressure on this in that uh, if you didn't give a kickback out of your wage to the boss, the guy that was doing the, the picking, you didn't get picked the next day. And also, if you didn't give a kickback out of your wage to his mate, the publican, and there were rows of pubs along the docks in those days, north side and south side of the river. And if you didn't go in and spend half your wages in that pub as well, you wouldn't get called and all this. One of the greatest things that I can ever do, but he actually managed to stop all that. The women of Dublin, the mothers, the grandmothers, the wives and widows, sisters and little uh, children, they, he was beloved to all of them because he stopped all that. Don't, I don't know, it's too long to go into how he managed to stop it, but he did stop it. And uh, that was probably one of the greatest things of all that he did, because he had men coming straight home then with uh, with the wages and uh, the, the, the food was on the table. And all it was prior to that, they were only getting fed half the week, out of half the wage and all of that. So that was a massive uh, advancement uh, altogether. The most of day union leaders in England and here indeed after were afraid of Larkin because basically Larkin was revolutionary and they were all reformers. You know, Larkin wanted 32 county socialist republic, workers' republic of Ireland or commonwealth of toil as he called it. And basically the others were only interested in almost like a Tontine Society or a credit union type thing in the best, you know, not no credit unions, but you know what I mean, as opposed to the fairly revolutionary that, that Larkin was. Also, you have to imagine, too, that Larkin, the look of Larkin was almost theatrical, but theatrical in the best sense of drama type of way, and he was aware of this. This was most to remember now, was before television and radio. He, he wore this big bla black suit with a white, clear white shirt and maybe, and a dark tie, and a big broad brimmed black hat, which nobody else was aware of in Dublin at the time. In fact, Devil Ayer took it out and he realized it was so successful. And then you had, of course, the broad black brimmer of the IRA address. But anyway, Lacker looked the part. He looked like Wyatt Earp now in the Wild West and Tombstone or Doug Holiday or Batmasters and so on. And I'm sure he, he knew what he was doing in his head. So while he was totally part, there was no union leader ever more part of his own class. He, they loved him. Uh, they absolutely adored him. Some of them actually taught. Some of them really believed, now you have to think of the religious times, some of them actually believed, he was so good, actually said that they thought he was the second son of God, come to say the Irish working class, that he was Jesus Christ's brother. They really believed that, because it was a complete turn. Now, when he came to Dublin first, because of the big black hat, and because of the the uh, the uh, the propaganda from the pulpit and from the capitalists was so anti-Lacanite, and, and it had him 
made out like it was a demon altogether because of what happened in Belfast for Fred Eliza. The old woman of them, the old shawl used, used to say, oh, the reason he wears the big black eyes because he's, he's a bat out of hell. He's got a third eye in the middle of his forehead high up there. But within three months... They were believing he was the second son of God. That's the type of... There's a quote by Countess Markham, uh, which sums him up brilliantly uh, and truly. Here she goes. Mother Margaret. Sitting there listening to Larkin, I realized that I was in the presence of something I have never come across before. Some great primeval force rather than just a man. A tornado... A storm-driven wave, the rushing to life of spring and the blasting breath of autumn all seemed to emanate from the power that spoke. It seemed as if its personality caught up, assimilated and threw back to the vast crowd that surrounded him every emotion that swayed them, every pain and joy that they had ever felt made articulate and sanctified. Only the great elemental force that is in all crowds had passed into his nature forever. That's some quote, isn't it? And most of the quotes from his own side are like that, you know. Uh, it just, it, but I thought the one the best represents yet the elemental force he was. There's never been anything before in minority politics or since uh, who who swept up uh, the lowest of the low and the poorest of the poor and amalgamated them all together into one cast red iron fist uh, the red hand of the union as it was and uh, we could certainly do them now <laughs> Wow, what a brilliant recording to have on tape before Jerry O'Leary passed away Right, and his interview was much more expansive, actually, and adds a really important dimension of social history to the whole story. So Jer talked about, for example, leaving school at 14, largely because of the vicious violence of teachers in his school, not just the priests, but the lay teachers who themselves had families. And he described how Dublin had changed over the years with working class amenities in particular being stripped away and undervalued by the new state. It reminded me that the coercive and carceral violence that was to be waged by the institutions of the new and Catholic-dominated independent state that emerged, whether we're talking about industrial schools or Magdalen laundries or prisons, this all fell disproportionately on the working class and the Dublin working class in particular, who were criminalised as children, which is something that Terry Fagan of the North Inner City Folklore Project talks about. Of course, we've had him on the pod before. And that's something that's true today, uh, still. The people in who populate Irish prisons overwhelmingly come from a handful of communities, and particularly the north inner city. And many of those communities have always had strong radical politics. And this was all sort of summed up for me somehow um, at this really incredible moment in 2015, the day of the marriage equality referendum that legalised gay marriage. So on that day, I got the boat from Britain with people who were going home to vote, uh, which, of course, lets off the passengers in Dublin's north inner city. And I stepped off and went straight to the nearest polling station to start reporting there. And there was this polling station around the back of Connolly Station. And there were two young women with buggies who were coming out after having voted. And I said something like, you know, how'd you vote, girls? And they kind of looked at me like I was crazy to kind of say, as if to say, like, 
like, how do you think, you know, <laughs> how can you even ask us that? Like, of course we voted yes, you know, um, and it kind of that was the moment when I I kind of knew this referendum was going to be won. And it was just this incredibly powerful, symbolic moment. Like some of the inner city ballot boxes had some of the highest yes votes in the entire country. There, there was said to be one ballot box in Finglas that had 100% yes votes. Wow. And it was like the fact that this, the overthrow of social conservatism should be done with such enthusiasm by working class Dublin was just so meaningful. Wow, yeah, absolutely. That really, that really uh, that, uh, has some profound implications. So what exactly happened to this radicalism then uh, in the years following the lockout? Where did it go? You know, mm. what can explain the extent of that conservative dominance for the rest of the 20th century? Considering like how instrumental socialism had been in the original rebellion, like it's one of the strange quirks of Irish history that you know, like it seems to have suddenly faded into the background uh, after independence. Uh, so, Naomi, why was it that the Labour Party then, even though it was founded by these iconic figures, Larkin and Connolly, has become a kind of marginal force in Irish politics? Right. It has been marginal since the beginning, uh, just mm. never really got off the ground. So, of course, since independence, Ireland's two most dominant political parties have been these two sides of Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael. They don't fit neatly into a left-right divide, and that's because they have their roots in the two sides of the civil war. Um, the the Labour Party uh, stuck around and over the decades it occasionally went into coalition. Sometimes Irish political system, the Irish political system was described as like two and a half parties with the Labour Party being a half, mm. sometimes propping up one or other party. But over the course of the 20th century, it struggled with deep splits within it and also the compromises that it had to make for power. And the mm. result is that the presence in the left in Ireland has for a very long time looked very different from the rest of Europe. And I recently heard this amazing kind of uh, fact that sums it up, which is that there's this landmark tome which is written about the left in Europe, which is called 100 Years of Socialism. And it's about a thousand pages long. And Ireland just isn't in it. It's just not there. It's not in it. <laughs> and this is a very rare honour. Like, I think only Luxembourg and, like, Iceland are also in there. And the, the reason given is that these are countries where the left has simply not played a significant role, whether in power or, or opposition. Oh my God, right. So not even like half a page out of a thousand pages, that's something else. And it's really interesting in itself, of course. Though I suppose that framing kind of misses the mark maybe when it comes to Ireland, like power and opposition, if you're going to look at things in, in those terms, didn't necessarily ever fall into a left-right spectrum, uh, so to speak, uh, in post-independence Ireland. Uh, so maybe it's just a question of chroniclers looking for labour movements in the wrong place. It, it makes sense when you hear about what happened exactly to the left in the years after independence. So mm. to understand this story, I spoke to Dr. Neve Perchel, who wrote the landmark history of the Irish Labour Party. And I asked her, why did the Labour movement fail to become established as a dominant political force in Parliament in Ireland in the way that it did in most European countries? And here's what she had to say. Jolie has described it as three, the three evil geniuses against socialism in Ireland. So it's the priest, the patriot and the peasants. So with the patriot, nationalism took priority in the years after the rising. While social and economic issues were hugely important, nationalism took the priority and then civil war became the main division the politics operated on. So in that sense, Labour was kind of 
had its its own agenda was regarded as being second to whatever else was happening with Ireland's relationship with Britain or after the Civil War. And then for the economy, Ireland's economy was didn't have the same kind of industrial base that you would have gotten in, in many other places. So there wasn't the sort of same kind of working class demographic that there was elsewhere in Europe. I mean, obviously in other countries then as well, there would have been a strong left in places that also had highly agricultural regions and that kind of thing. But in this sense, Ireland is different again because of the role of the church. So the Catholic church was strongly against the state having control over anything, which made supporting even mild socialism very difficult. And even though there was a, there would have been a strong left in many Catholic countries and, you know, obviously Italy and Spain would be good examples and they would have had strong communist parties and strong socialist or labor parties. But they, in those countries, the church was regarded as being part of the establishment in a way that it wasn't here. So the Catholic church has greater moral authority or greater authority over people in Ireland on issues like that because in Ireland, the ruling church would have been the Church of Ireland in the past. So you had this combination of pressures. You had the influence of the church and its opposition to the state involvement was so intense that even the mildest form of democratic socialism would be demonised as radical communism. Um, That left the left kind of unable to be left wing, but then also struggling to distinguish what was different about it from other parties. And at the same time, Labour didn't have an exclusive hold on the unions. Like the idea of a Labour Party is that it's the political voice of the trade union movement. But in Ireland's case, Fianna Fáil was really active and really good at having a strong representation within unions itself. Labour would have advocated for things like housing provision or better working conditions, better social welfare benefits. And a lot of these kind of policies were grabbed by, by Fianna Fáil when it was founded in um, in the middle 1920s. So a lot of the things that would have been appealing for Labour were taken by Fianna Fáil as their own policies. But Fianna Fáil was better organised and it was able to use nationalism as well. So in combining nationalism with the best parts of Labour Party policy, they were able to grow support for themselves in a way that they took a lot of the support that Labour might have otherwise been expected to get in normal circumstances. And there were other factors too. James Connolly was, of course, executed for his role in the 1916 Easter Rising. And for the Labour movement, that constituted the loss of their most prominent writer and thinker. And meanwhile, Jim Larkin was so exhausted by the lockout that he left for the United States and didn't return until the 1920s. And when he did return, actually, far from being a unifying moment, his reappearance actually precipitated this fierce conflict between loyal Larkinites and those who had been running the union in his absence. And this was a split that basically tore the movement apart for decades. Larkin didn't really like anything that he couldn't run. He was someone who, I suppose, wanted to be the person in charge of things or he couldn't take, he couldn't be number two or, or see anyone else in control of anything. So he 
left in 1914 and comes back in 1923. And the people who had been running the union in the meantime, there was a, a clash between those people and the people who were still sort of close to Larkin. And just as the Irish Civil War had come to an end, Larkin returned to Dublin and a civil war of sorts started in the in the Labour Party and in the trade union movement. So it was really very bitter, very, very divisive. The union that Larkin had established in 1908, there was a breakaway union, the Workers' Union of Ireland, which was established by people who were loyal to Larkin. And the Workers' Union and the Transport Union were at loggerheads then for decades afterwards, sometimes worse than others. But during the 1920s, at a time when Labour should have been establishing itself and growing, it spent a huge amount of time fighting itself. So there's a question of whether Larkin is a a hero or a wrecker, but he certainly he was a hero to many. And Dublin, in many ways, stayed loyal to Larkin. But it was extraordinarily bitter. And a lot of people who were involved kind of never forgave each other in the years that came afterward. My grandparents used to say they had a mixed marriage because my granddad was Workers' Union of Ireland and my granny was Irish Transport and General Workers' Union. And the upshot of all of this, Tim, was that Labour did pretty well in the 1922 election and it emerged as actually the main opposition. But in 1923, they lost half their votes and basically stayed on about 10% support for the next 90 years. Wow. Okay, right. So what about Labour politics now? We often talk about a left-wing surge in Ireland in recent years, but Labour are not necessarily part of that uh, in any major way. Like, they're very far from, from that movement, it seems, at the moment. Yeah, it's really interesting. So, like, in some ways, like, if you listen to people who are in the left in Ireland talk about the left, they don't even include Labour in the group that they're talking about, like, as the left at all. And the reasons for this are that in the wake of the financial crisis and the housing crash, um, Labour actually at first had a good election in 2011. Basically, that election, Fianna Fáil was blamed for the economic disaster and they were really hammered. And Labour kind of benefited from that and swept up 19.5% of first preference votes and a handsome 37 seats, which was really a great result for them. And they, they subsequently went into coalition with Fine Gael. But... Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> right. So yeah, think of the year 2011. Like, Ireland was still undergoing its um, massive bailout and this was an austerity government. So it was a kind of cruel irony of history that now in power, Labour set about slashing the state and public spending um, and the electorate was absolutely merciless in response. So in the next election, Labour fell to what was then their lowest ever share of seats and won just 6.6% of first preferences. And like, even though they were the junior coalition partner, you know, they weren't the driving force and they kind of said, oh, we were moderating the worst of the excesses or whatever you know it was actually for the electorate it was somehow worse and less forgivable for Labour to have been doing these things you know mm-hmm. like Fine Gael also lost seats but not as much and ended up in government again next time 
And then next election round in 2020, Labour did even worse. So it's not like they've recovered. They only got 4.4% of first preference vote, which was a new historic low. Wow. Oh, my God. 4.4. And that's, of course, all the more striking when it goes down from 19.5, you know, less than (laughs) 10 years before. But that's a lot of people. Then 19.5% of voters is a lot of people. And they gave Labour their first preference back in 2011. Where did their votes go instead in 2020? In the immediate aftermath, some went back to Fianna Fáil, so there was a little bit of a resurgence for Fianna Fáil, but, you know, very far from all of them, Fianna Fáil is still very much a diminished force. And mm. they kind of dispersed all over the place. So what we've seen is that essentially the financial crisis had this kind of big bang effect on Irish politics and just destabilised the electorate, which had been stable for a very long time in its traditional voting patterns. Now it's incredibly dynamic. It changes every election enormously. And we can see that there is momentum on the left, but it's very splintered. So there's a range of smaller parties that have had momentum momentum at different moments. There's like People Before Profit, Anti-Austerity Alliance, there's the Social Democrats, there's the Greens and so on. And it all makes for, you know, kind of different political landscape to other European countries. And I heard this anecdote recently, which kind of summed it up, um, which was that recently a delegation came from another European parliament to visit the Oireachtas and they were given a tour and so on and introduced. And they were amazed to discover that in the Irish parliament, there are almost the same number of elected representatives who are revolutionary Trotskyists as there are Labour TDs. Oh, right. Okay. (laughs) Right. Okay. Well, again, I suppose that has a lot to do with expectations, right? Uh, That might not always align with Ireland's political system. Like, where's the Socialist Party? Um, But uh, it still is really remarkable, even uh, given the context. Of course, both those groups are relatively tiny, about five or six members each, I suppose. Mm, And... um, Yeah, and a lot of like that makeup has to do with the other big story of recent uh, Irish political history, and that is, of course, the rise of Sinn Féin. Exactly. That is the other major factor in all of this. So like, just to think back, it is it is hard to remember this, but Sinn Féin had one singular seat in the Oireachtas up until 2002. One seat. But it began its rise really in earnest in the wake of the financial crisis when it branded itself as an anti-austerity party and it went on to prominently support the progressive social movements to legalise gay marriage and abortion and it all built up to this historic result in 2020 when it received the most first preference votes of any party. Mm. Um, So it proudly brands itself as a left-wing progressive party But what we can see is that it has some of the advantageous kind of chameleon-like nature that Fianna Fáil once had in that, you know, if you actually poll the voters for Sinn Féin about their views, you actually discover that quite a substantial number of them are pretty right-wing. Um, And it's also, you know, Sinn Féin has different policies when in power in the North, where, you know, a bit like Labour in the Republic, it's been involved in implementing austerity. And it also takes a more qualified position on abortion rights than it does in the South. Mm. But, you know, Sinn Féin has this nationalist kind of magic that allows itself to scoop up voters from left and right. And something about that actually reminds people of the old Fianna Fáil. It's similar in a way. And for that reason, it terrifies the current Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael because they see this surging party as perhaps destined to become the dominant force that they once were. That is really fascinating. I had never really thought about it like that before. But I think what you say there about like Fianna Fáil's hidden 
a weapon being their chameleon-like ability to appeal to everyone. I think I'm, I think that's actually a very pertinent point. Like looking back, like the template of success in Irish politics, it seems, has relied on the ability to somehow encompass the politics of Larkin and the politics of middle-class Catholics like like Martin Murphy and the nationalist rhetoric of Markovich and Connolly, like all at the same time, like being a lot of things mm. to a lot of different people. Uh, it does strike me, like, you know, when we look at this history now, like in, in long term, that it's not surprising that Ireland hasn't, made, hasn't had a major left or right faction. If for all this time, you know, all these parties have been trying to model themselves as an entity that will represent everyone in a new nation trying to be like the face mm. of the nation itself. But as we've seen, 100 years on from independence, the political landscape is beginning to look very different. And it's an ongoing story. So I don't think we've heard the left. Uh, oh, there's a there's a Freudian slip from me. I don't think we've heard the last <laughs> from the Irish left. <laughs> all right. Okay, guys, uh, that's all we have time for today. But there is loads more to delve into here, which is why we'll be putting up a whole lot of bonus content related to this episode on Patreon. I am going to go and dig around into the history of that class of people who were so fundamental to the story of the lockout and the politics of that era, but whom we hear so little about, and that is, of course, the middle-class Catholics. I can't wait to hear more about that. Mm -hmm. I'm also posting the full interview with Dr. Neve Porchelle, in which we talked about everything from the legacy of Larkin and Connolly to the comparative fates of the left wing in Ireland versus Italy and Spain. It's a really fascinating chat, and I'll be posting it especially for our Patreon supporters over at patreon.com forward slash the Irish passport. All right, so stay tuned for our next episode in which we will be releasing the full interview with Jer O'Leary, an icon of the modern Irish left and indeed a Republican one. This is, to our knowledge, the only interview Jer ever did before he died. And it's an absolute treasure trove of oral history that reflects on everything from political theatre in the 70s to how Dublin has changed today. Stay tuned for that one, everyone. And thank you so much for listening. Aslan for now. Aslan.